the biggest and most important part of the sales process is the commitment to change that precedes the demo, that precedes looking at specific solutions. You're listening to Mental Selling, the sales performance podcast, a show from Integrity Solutions. This is a podcast for passionate leaders in sales and customer service who are driven by purpose, not just a paycheck. People who want to create broader and deeper connections with customers and their teams by building trust and mastering the critical mental and emotional sides of sales. You're about to hear a conversation from sales leaders and industry experts about what it takes to translate sales knowledge into sales performance. How to change the sales conversation by putting the focus on building relationships and adding value, removing the blockers that keep salespeople from reaching their potential, creating an inspiring learning environment and coaching culture, and ultimately increasing sales achievement and improving customer loyalty. Ready to rise up to the top of your game? Let's get right into the show. Welcome, everyone, to Mental Selling, your favorite sales podcast. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Will Milano with Integrity Solutions, and thanks for being here wherever you are and whenever you're listening to this. We have a really thoughtful and interesting guest with us today, someone that I've known and respected for quite a while, Matt Hines. Matt is president and founder of Hines Marketing. He brings really great perspectives and expertise in marketing, business development, and sales. He crosses over all of them. He is an author. He was the author of Predictable Pipeline, as well as Full Funnel Marketing. He's a regular speaker, nationally recognized and an award-winning blogger. And he actually leads a Friday morning's group called the CMO's Coffee Talk, which I actually join myself quite often and have learned quite a bit from over the last year or so. I've learned a lot from Matt over the years. I share a lot of what his perspectives that he writes about on social media and thought as we reinvented the Mental Selling Podcast, that he would be a great guest to have early on for our audience to hear from. So Matt, welcome to Mental Selling and thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So we talked about a few things that we wanted to get into today. And the, the main thing, and Matt's been talking about this for a while, and I thought it was extremely relevant for salespeople, especially as we enter the new year, enter 2022. And that is the whole idea around account-based marketing, account-based selling, which go hand in hand, and the shift to this more account-based approach for sales and marketing. And I guess the first question, Matt, is how much of a new thing is this really? And and how has it evolved? Yeah, good question. You know, I on one hand, this really isn't new. Like, I mean, at the end of the day in B2B, we're not selling to individuals. It's the building, it's the it's the accounts that we really care the most about. It's the logo of the company that we want to put on our wall. We've always sold to individuals, right? I mean, you know, the building isn't going to answer the phone. The building isn't going to sign the contract. So there's a lead component that's always been here. But And, and I could, you could also argue that the sales organization has always been account focused. You could argue that they're doing whatever they can to focus on getting the account across the line. But I do think this this is different in a couple of different ways. One, I do think that this implies, if we think of this not as account-based marketing, we think about this just as account-based go-to-market or however you want to call it. Right. Go to market, probably. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the sales organization is thinking more holistically about the buying committee. Like, there's a disciplined approach now for these large, complex deals. More and more members of the buying committee, more and more people inside this, the buying account that have some vested interest not in buying from you, but in the in, in the solution and in the problem it solves. There isn't just one decision maker anymore. Like my dad sold Caterpillar tractors for 35 years, and he was always looking for veto. There's actually a book called Selling to the Veto, and veto stands for the very important top officer. And so everyone's look, sales has always looked for that like top dog in the organization that they can go and sell to. And increasingly today, that top dog, she's delegating research, she's delegating decisions to her team. And there's a longer buying journey and a bigger buying committee. And so you are one of our largest jobs as sellers is to help build internal consensus towards a commitment to change. Like a commitment to change has to happen first, and then they will look for solutions and maybe buy from you. But that consensus building around the commitment to change is really important. This is not a sales job. This is not a marketing job. If you are a seller, your organization needs to needs to orchestrate that. So that implies then a pretty significant difference in the way that marketing works. Right? It's not just getting individual leads, throwing them over the fence and hoping that closes the deal. That's not a whole lot better than trying to sell a veto. So there's an understanding of the buying committee. There's an understanding of stages of the buying journey. And there's an orchestration of that around the right target accounts that I think is a is a new disciplined approach to account base for sales and marketing that com- many companies are leaning into and seeing far greater precision and performance from their go-to-market efforts. And that brings up a good point. I was actually going to ask you this a little bit later on, but let's, you touched on it now, so let's get into, in, into it, which is this idea of target account precision and the importance, you know, a lot of time, right? The salespeople have to spend on understanding who their target account really is and doing the homework to move from, you know, what we would call the, the addressable market you know, you can sell to anybody to who your real target market is, right? So how much of their time up front, especially like, let's say now early in the year, they need to be spending understanding who are the real targets that they could help most. And then to your point about the buying committee members, right? So that it's the specific roles that they know are most likely in that circle of, of, uh, of influencers. Yeah. Well, so a couple things there. One, and from an account standpoint, I think account selection is really, really important. You know, identifying exactly who you should be selling to and why is important. You know, I would say there's many sales organizations historically that have had strategic account programs that were developed either because they were the biggest companies in their addressable market or because those are the companies their salespeople had in their Rolodex, right? That's not a very scientific way of choosing accounts. And it's got to be more than just saying, I'm selling to companies in healthcare that are over a certain size. One of the most important parts of account selection is what we think of as the psychographic details. Like what are the attributes and characteristics and intent signals you're going to see and look for in your target accounts that indicate that they are ready to buy? Let me put that in a slightly different context. A couple of years ago, Gartner did some research around sales readiness and they looked across a bunch of different B2B markets and they found that B2B organizations in terms of sales readiness fall into three categories. The first is is actively buying. Like they realize they have a problem and they're pursuing a solution. Like that's only about three to four percent of the market in any given market is in that category. Then they say approximately forty six percent of the market is what they call various levels of poised, meaning they have the problem but they're not pursuing a solution. They have the problem but they have not committed to change. They have the problem but they maybe don't know about it. They haven't quantified it. They haven't realized how big the problem is. So somewhere in there. 
the 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 underlying conditions of understanding that problem of quantifying that problem the intent signals that indicate someone is start starting to understand that there's a problem there's part of where your target market is and the other 50 percent just you don't want to spend time on it. they're just not they're not going to be worth their time if they come to you fine but just economically it's not worth pursuing so there's the actively buying that are ready now and then there's a some percent of the 46 percent you want to go after so in terms of account selection and target account definition really getting narrowly to that psychographic definition. What are the attributes? What are the characteristics? And what are the dynamic intent signals that may come up with those target accounts that are the reason why they should be on your target account list? And I don't know if this is, I mean, this is implied, but I'll say it explicitly. This also means that your target account list has some level of fluidity, that there are companies you know, that, that, that will, I, that will start to exhibit signals of intent, start to exhibit signals of having sort of those psychographic matches. That means they are growing in importance to you in terms of whether you should go after them. So knowing what that definition is, is to start and constantly looking at and evaluating the market for who matches that, this is where you have the most success and the most precision in selling overall. And that's a good point because that's probably one of the mindset shifts that salespeople have to have, which is, okay, my target account list on January 1st is not the target account list you probably should have come July, November. Like you said, it's going to be fluid. It's going to evolve. People are going to be added to it and drop off that as they go, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, let me give you an example in an industry. So let's say you're selling into, you're in education technology and you're selling to school districts. Well, you would say, okay, our best target accounts are the biggest school districts, right? So let's just build a list based on the school districts with the most students. Well, there's attributes about the, how those school districts buy that make some more interesting than others. So for instance, are technology decisions made at the district level or at the school level? makes a big difference, right? New York Board of Education, one of the largest school districts in the country, a lot of technology decisions are made at the local level. You got to go sell literally like 1,500 deals to get the school district, LA Unified School District, single decision across the board. There's a curriculum technologist on staff at the district level, right? If that person exists, it means there is a commitment to a disciplined approach to technology that is going to help them make more informed decisions. So, now you can go select com- organizations to sell to that may not be all the largest, but have the conditions in place that make them far more likely to engage and buy. And uh, so a lot of what we're talking about shifting in a salesperson's mindset is this getting away from this idea that all revenue is good revenue, right? Or that, you know, that tongue in cheek, like, well, we can help anybody because as you're describing, it's a really inefficient way to go to market. It's just a spray and pray approach. Now, one of the things I'd like to go a little d- deeper on with you is you talk a lot about from the account standpoint, intent signals. And when a salesperson is looking at individual leads from a person, from, you know, from a single person standpoint, that's a lot easier, isn't it? To, to understand what their intent signals are because you have more access to data around what he or she is doing, how they've engaged with your brand, how much they know you, that sort of thing. But how do you best discern today intent signals from a, an account standpoint? Well, I think this is another reason why it's important to look at the account and not just look at the individuals because you can see multiple people in an account and what their activity is. It may be that people junior in the account are showing some of the first intent signals because they have been it's been delegated to them to go do some due diligence around the problem. Now are they the decision maker? No, are they the check writer? No. But has the check writer decision maker asked that person to go do some work on it? 
possibly right and if you see multiple people in the organization start to check out different types of content or chart to exhibit signals that they're starting to discover and or at least sort of explore a problem like that combined effort across the account is worth looking at and so i think where you previously would have said maybe rightfully just because someone downloaded the white paper doesn't mean that they're actively ready to buy just because they went to a webinar doesn't mean that they are sales qualified but if you can see across that buying committee what that activity looks like on your site on other sites, you know, in terms of sort of the chatter that often happens on the dark web and dark social that, you know, we aren't tracking like so much is so many of the interactions that we care about so much of what we, what we want to see, we can't see and probably will never see. So how do we, I mean, understanding this and doing this well, isn't just sort of putting a bunch of like, you know, deploying a bunch of sensors to try to read, but understanding what are you reading? What are you looking for? What activities, what behaviors, and what types of content engagement signals that someone is at that early stage of the buying journey, ready to move from poised to actively buying? The earlier you can identify that, the more consistently you can identify that through a tight precision of buying journey understanding, the more likely you're going to be in the right place at the right time to meet that prospect where they are and help move that deal forward. And to your point, like you said, the, the reality is that some of those buying signals, whether it's individual or from an account standpoint, are never going to be known to you. Some of the interactions and things that people are seeing on social media or, you know, they heard somebody speak at a conference, whatever the case may be, you're never going to know that. But there's still value from a brand standpoint in doing those things because you know that that the reach is there. Now, going back even, I don't know, I can think back to when it started for, for me is around 2008 was the idea of focusing, having a, a tremendous focus on marketing qualified leads, MQLs. How should, you know, that was like, that was the holy grail, right? For years, how many MQLs can you, can you develop? Where's that today? And what's the role that an MQL should have in an organization? And how, you know, how do salespeople view those today versus say, even uh, as recently as just four years ago? Well, some of that depends on what you define as an MQL. You know, I mean, if you're saying anybody, no matter who they are, anybody that interacts with our content or anybody that fills out a form is a marketing qualified lead, like that's just lazy no matter what. That was lazy 20 years ago. It's lazy today. Yeah. If they sign up for your, they sign up for your newsletter on the website, you don't want to, you know, are you going to have a salesperson call that person? Yeah, just because they sign up for newsletter doesn't mean they want to demo. Doesn't mean they're anywhere near ready to buy. Doesn't mean I mean just like that's 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 lazy. And I think that's where marketing can oftentimes in the past has said this is what we can do. So this is what we're going to give sales, and it just it doesn't work very well. Now that said, if you've got a tight definition of who qualifies as a lead from what accounts and what activity qualifies as saying hmm. The right person at the right company is showing some level of interest. Does that mean that goes to sales? Not necessarily. Does that mean they're ready for a demo? Maybe, maybe not. So in, I still think there's value in differentiating a marketing qualified lead from a sales qualified lead, meaning sales qualified, meaning ready for sales. Marketing qualified, meaning we got a live one here. Let's do some further due diligence. Let's do some follow-up. Let's do further nurture. Let's, put, let's offer more contextual content you know, without asking anything return to see if they still engage with that. The other concept we're seeing far more today is combining sort of sort of contact based metrics, meaning what is an individual doing versus that body of work across people at a contact. So not just a marketing qualified lead, but a marketing qualified account. Right. If you've already predefined an account based on certain attributes, this is why they're interesting to me. And now I'm seeing enough activity from people in that account 
we're seeing marketing qualified account, sales qualified account that is a collection of the whole that looks at a body of work across multiple activities, potentially multiple channels and campaigns and multiple people within that account to indicate hmm, something's going on here. There's something worth pursuing. And underlying all of this, Will, is making sure that there is tight definitions and agreement between sales and marketing of what these different roles are. Like marketing qualified lead may never get to sales unless it reaches another threshold. But you agree with sales. Like if we agree that once they reach this threshold, they're sales worthy, then you agree that you're going to do a certain follow up. And so now it's not just about throwing as many bodies over the wall as possible to sales. It's getting the right opportunities for engagement to sales. Right. It's the quality over quantity. Yeah. And this, and, and don't, and do not underestimate the culture change that will be required to make this work. Right. Where you historic, where you historically have had a sales organization that says, sometimes I get good stuff from marketing, but mostly I'm on my own. Right. Or a marketing organization that has been focused on what we think of as the marketing of more, like more clicks, more leads, more, more MQLs. Now we're saying, I don't care about the most possible leads at the lowest possible cost. I care about the right leads at the right cost. Like, what am I willing to spend? I might be willing to spend three times as much on a lead if it's the right person at the right account at the right moment. Right. Like you were saying, lead activity within a specific account, that context matters exponentially more. Even if, you know, the little nice bar chart doesn't always go up and to the right, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what you're shooting for anymore. Oh, I'm definitely shooting for that chart, but I'm looking at a different metric. I don't care about the MQL anymore. Like I want marketing to be thinking about contribution to pipeline. I want marketing influence on closed deals. I want marketing influence on land and expanding lifetime value. Those metrics I want up and to the right. And so I'm fine still having, I mean, obviously you still have to have KPIs. Many marketing organizations, unfortunately, aren't focused on the right metrics that have a direct impact on the business. What about the uh, another sort of different lens on account-based focus, which is account-based customer retention? Do you think that's that's often dismissed? And is there is there opportunity there for sales teams and salespeople to reach their growth goals specifically around customer retention and expanding what's going on within existing customers? I'm so glad you brought this up because I think this is a massive opportunity for organizations that are have leaned into and developed a level of competency and comfortability with sort of the acquisition component of account based. Just because you've acquired them doesn't mean that, you know, doesn't mean you leave that account based orientation aside and you almost have to sort of just kind of reset the buying committee because now once the deal is closed, there may be different people in the organization that are actively using your product or service. So the buying committee likely overlaps with the user committee, right? But it may be different. And so thinking about, okay, what's that new committee look like? What are the different people with different roles? How do I start to go from having a new user to someone with great first impressions to someone who becomes an advocate and evangelize, evangelist for your business internally and externally? Because, and if you don't manage that committee, what happens is you may have individuals at point solutions across the company that are using your product. Guess what? They're all going to turn over at some point. Right. And so if you are leaving sort of the 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 history of success and rationale for continuing to individuals and not managing that and communicating that value across the account, you're exposing yourself to a lot of churn risk, let alone the idea that a lot of companies are now, especially those that are deploying more of a product led growth motion, you know, and that are thinking more about land and expand just because you landed a deal. Don't assume that it's automatically going to expand. Right. And so what additional opportunities you have in that account that you need to manage 
from an account standpoint, you're still building and sustaining internal consensus throughout the entire customer journey. And to, to sort of amplify one of the things you said, the, the, the users, once you're within the account, who are often then your, your biggest advocates, those people are, A, the buyers of tomorrow. They may, they may be in leadership and, and buying influence roles two to three years from now. And also, B, I would say, if and when your top contact, point of contact within an organization leaves, having an expanded presence among those users and advocates will help you stay entrenched regardless of of who then comes on board that you may not know, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think yeah, that's why it's, you know, even if you're not thinking about account-based retention, you know, at minimum, you have to be thinking about how to constantly reinforce the value you provide to an organization, right? Like you spent time up front helping them discover and quantify the problem and commit to change and commit to change based on expectation that a result was going to be generated, right? Don't leave that to chance once the, you know, once the deal is done. Don't leave it to the prospect to self-quantify that impact. You need to be actively and proactively communicating whether they're hitting that or not. And if you're if they're hitting those objectives and if they're achieving those objectives, everybody needs to know. You need to be celebrating and reinforcing that, right? So yeah, there's an awful lot of work I think many companies have. I think there's, you know, especially growth and scale phase companies or you know, early stage companies so focused on bringing in new deals that you know, 90% of the sales and marketing efforts goes to those new deals and you have an 800 number and a email newsletter that goes to customers and it's more reactive and tactical than it should be. Ken, this is sort of a broad question, but but I want to ask it. What do you think at a high level customers expect from salespeople today that may have been different than, I don't know, even, you know, let's say even just two, three years ago before the world went upside down? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, when, when my dad was selling tractors, there was no internet, you know, there was no, there was very little, if any, self-education. So you were expecting the sales rep to come in and do education to help you understand your options, to help you discover parts of the problem. Some of those things still exist, but the prospect can now self-identify and self-service a lot of that work. And so if you're a sales rep coming in and purely pitching products, if you're just sort of managing your process and working through to a demo and not helping the prospect translate some of the information they see outside of the world, you know, I think, you know, so, you know, Brent Adamson was one of the co-authors of the Challenger sale, and it really introduced this idea, this research-based idea of having the commercial insight, the reframe of the problem, right, to help people understand and quantify the pro- cost of a problem they did or didn't know that they have. His recent work as part of Gartner has been around this concept of sense-making, the idea that there are so many commercial insights out there. There is so much content, you know, that, that, that the prospects are having a hard time translating and understanding what's what. So if you as a sales rep can develop the skill of sense-making, if you can develop the school to the skill of, of curating all the information out there, build some trust and credibility for yourself that you know your industry, that you know your customer situations, and that you can help them filter through the noise to get to the real insights. Like you become someone they want to listen to. You move from being interruptive to irresistible. If you can get as a brand, if you can get your sales and marketing to a place where your prospects can't wait to hear from you again. Like this is entirely possible and is happening in a lot of organizations today that put an enormous amount of focus on value, on helping to educate their prospects and doing that sense making and filtering for them to help them understand what's important. Well, it's that trusted advisor aspect 
of your of of your brand as a company and as an individual salesperson, right? And you're not just throwing information at them, but it's the sense making, which as you were alluding to, the sense making is about the so what factor. Yeah. And, and, and what's exciting about that opportunity is it doesn't necessarily require you to have all of the insights. It doesn't require you as a brand to create the insights. Your job now is to take those insights and to translate and condense them into a message and a story and a value translation that makes sense to your prospect. Right. So the job here is not creation, although there's an enormous opportunity for creation if those insights don't exist. The job here is curation. The job here is translation for each of those prospects. These crazy busy prospects who are going to go from meeting to meeting to meeting and don't have time to get their own mind around some of those things and don't have the time or even ability to grok that information into something that makes sense for them. Your job as a seller is to help do that. The biggest and most important part of the sales process is the commitment to change that precedes the demo, that precedes looking at specific solutions. I mean, I could argue the deal is made, the sale is made before the opportunity is created because you are educating and driving a commitment from your prospects to do something differently to their own benefit. Right. And a lot of times, like you said, because there's so much data and information at the buyer's fingertips that they're not engaging with the salesperson until so much further along in the process, right? So they're, or they've already made up their mind about you in a lot of ways well before they've ever talked to you. Yeah. Well, and this is, this is another reason why I think the archaic, the old method of thinking about the funnel doesn't work anymore. Like, you know, historically, we've got marketing owns the top of the funnel, sales owns the bottom. In the middle is this wall and sales marketing throws over leads and collateral and says, go after it, right? It puts the salesperson at a disadvantage because now they have to go build a relationship all over again. Versus if you think about that funnel split more, maybe more vertically with a diagonal bent, where maybe marketing has the majority of the role to sort of educate and create interest at the top of the funnel and sales may be the, doing the majority work to get the deal closed at the end. But it is very much a partnership between sales and marketing through the entire funnel. And I am building, if I'm in marketing, I'm building my sales organization and my sales reps as those trusted advisors, as those sense makers from far early on in the process. You know, we, we, there was an article in the journal, Wall Street Journal, I think, as we record this today, that talked about the fact that, you know, office phones have been ignored, that as people go back to the office, the, the message light is blinking and no one cares. Like, is the phone dead? I don't know. I still use the phone an awful lot. I still count on other people to help me make decisions. I still count on other people. I can read articles all day long, but if I can find an expert, if I can find a trusted advisor, I want to spend time with them. It's the reason why the analyst industry is alive and well. We're still looking for other people that have talked to everybody else, that have read everything else that could help us make sense of something. Right. It's the quality. Can can you deliver the quality of the insights and interpretations so that, again, for the buyer, they're not having to go out and read 12, 15 articles, but you're interpreting you're interpreting those things and sort of boiling it down for them. Yeah. And not only are you doing that, but they trust what's coming out of that process. And that trust doesn't come from a single phone call. Like your ability as a brand to create content, to deliver content. We talked about going from being interrupted to irresistible. That starts with your content. It starts with what comes from marketing. It starts with your blog. It starts with podcasts like this, a body of work of content that demonstrates to a prospect these people seem to know what they're talking about. These people are bringing insights and value to my life on a regular basis. Like maybe they'll be ready to buy in a month. Maybe it's two years from now, but those are the foundations of building trust. Those are the reasons why people are listening to your sense maker and trust and respect the outcome of what they, what they share with. Yeah. You can't develop that buyer relationship 
until there's trust and credibility. And like you said, it's the, it's the content that is by and large going to be the, the initial path down that road. You got it. So let's talk a little bit more. Let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into rethinking the, the buying committee, who's involved, how to engage with them. So you might have an individual lead or point of contact. Again, even if you recognize that that person is not the sole decision maker and he or she most likely is not, if you do your due diligence as a salesperson to understand, okay, these are the other three, four, five, whatever it might be, buyer personas that are most likely involved in the decision. What's the point that a salesperson should start engaging with those other people? And how do you balance that with the relationship that you're already developing with one person? Because I, I've, I've heard the question before, and it's a very valid point of, I'm already in conversation with Jane Doe at Company X. Isn't, isn't it going to look bad if I go around Jane Doe's back to these four or five other people and try to get meetings with them? How would you respond to that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you do that out of context, if you do that without the first person's knowledge or permission, that could backfire on you. But if you think about that first person you talk to, like, hey, listen, like, you know, we know that we've already identified Mr. Mrs. Whoever that this, this outcome is important to you, that achieving this outcome is important, that there may be a bigger problem here than you thought. You're super busy. You got to go to another meeting. Would it be useful for me to spend time educating and working with your team to help them understand the problem, to help build consensus inside your own organization to get something done. So you don't have to do it yourself, right? So now instead of being a go behind my back, those conversations with other members of the buying committee become a benefit to the decision maker, right? Just call it out, drop the rope, release the tension of like, hey, I'm trying to like get into as many conversations as possible and say, if we've already reached a point where you understand there's value in pursuing this, how can I help with that? How can I help on your behalf with other people on your team to support this? I also think that, you know, if you're making a phone call, if you're doing direct engagement with those rep, with those other people in the buying committee, like that may be seen as going behind their back, but there's the opportunity of potentially using email using you know, an ABX platform to put content in front of them across the web. I mean, there's other ways of sort of ensuring that other people in the buying committee start to get exposed to the content and the insights and the sense-making that will help them organically build more awareness of the problem and more of a commitment to change. Right. It's a balancing act. You don't have to go entirely separately to other people to try to get meetings. But like you said, you can either A, bring the, the, the buyer personas up by name because you can find who they are pretty easily. That's a quick LinkedIn search, that sort of thing to say, hey, does it make sense that we might loop in this person, that person sort of thing? But at the same time, you can do that additional exposure to, of your brand to those other people, even if you're not in discussions with them. Well, this works. This works multiple directions. I mean, one of my very first clients 13 plus years ago when I started my own business was a tech company in the um, in the HR space. And we were selling an HR solution on behalf of this company. And their primary buyer was a director of HR. Well, this is 2008, the beginning of the recession. And all of a sudden, it was at a price point where the HR director didn't have direct budget authority to buy it. They had to go to the, C the, the, to the, to the CFO. The CFO was now a member of the buying committee. The CFO did not want to get on the phone <laughs> and talk to us directly about this. So we were teaching heads of HR how to go and talk to CFOs. We were giving them insights to have that internal conversation with the CFO, which is a different conversation and a different set of, of benefits than what an HR person may want to have. 
So, and because we weren't on the phone with her, I mean, part of our sales motion with that client was having the sales reps do role-playing presentations with the head of HR, practicing giving the presentation of the value prop to the CFO, right? And so we were essentially writing the head of HR's deck, writing their pitch to the CFO. And we could use 80, 90% of the same pitch with multiple accounts and just make adjustments based on their unique situation and, and cultures. But, you know, building consensus from an account happens more smoothly and more more efficiently if it happens inside our ability externally to sort of say hey we're, we've identified the eight people let's pitch them all let's, let's communicate with them all great but if you can get that team to organize consensus internally find your champion wherever they are whatever level they're at and arm them with the right materials to build that internal consensus that's a very powerful thing and if they build it internally they will stick with it far more likely yeah it'll break down barriers a lot faster so you're a marketing guy. I'm a marketing guy. So we love, I like having these conversations and this comes up a lot in, in things like the CMOs coffee talks that you do on, on Fridays. Salespeople and company brands or salespeople in the concept of brand in general, there's still gaps, right? In understanding. And how would you say that a salesperson should view brand in the context of its role in the sales process and the value of brand building from a company standpoint, as well as, as building their own there, you know, right. Everybody has their own brand that they're trying to establish, especially when it comes to developing customer relationships. So what is it about brand that, that salespeople either get wrong or dismiss or, or need to, to view differently? Well, you know, it's, there's, <laughs> we could take a whole nother hour on this, this question, right? I think there's, you know, building a brand takes time. Building a brand takes focus and consistency and discipline. It takes a long time to build. It can take a moment to kill. But, you know, what I hear a lot from salespeople is not we need to build a brand, but like I need more people to have heard of us. I need more people when I call them or when I talk to them, like, oh, I've seen your stuff or oh, I've heard of you guys or oh, you know, you guys were a huge presence of the last trade show. And look, I mean, that you can say like, wow, we did this huge blast splash of the trade show. We sponsored, you know, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the French Prince, like coming and doing the, the, the you know, the, the party. Like you know, did that really, did, how, what kind of pipeline did that create? It's like, well, immediately, like directly, like none, maybe, but that may not be the point. I've seen a lot of companies invest in brand and invest in brand building efforts because they want to be part of the consideration set, right? If you're thinking about deploying an account-based motion in marketing, like unaided, what are the couple tools you might think you need? Like once, and again, let's put the tools in context. You need a strategy first, process second, then technology and tools to support it third. But once you get to that tools conversation, what are the unaided players in the category that you want that you want to make sure you're thinking about. And if you're the seller, if you are that one of those brands, you're like, how do we make sure that we are always in the consideration set? So you invest in your brand. You invest in making sure you're in analyst reports. You invest in making sure that you're doing that long play that may not turn into pipeline this month or this quarter, but over time make you a de default consideration, right? That the big deals are going to include you. You may not win them all. That's not the point. But you want way more at bats with the right target accounts in a more efficient way that subsidizes your demand gen costs. It means you don't have to be the needle in the haystack, making sure that your demand campaign is to the right person at the right account at the right time. That brand halo and level of awareness supports you. So sales reps have been asking for this for a long time. I think there's the gap sometimes is in the expectation of how quickly it can be developed. That sort of if this, then that expectation versus like what you were talking about earlier, which is in the consideration phase, somebody who's becoming aware of you 
they might be willing to talk. It'd be great if they're willing to talk to you today, but that person might be willing to talk to you a month from now or six or 18 months from now. And an important part of that is going to be how how the company and how the individual salesperson creates and establish that brand, right? Well, and there's a difference between willingness to talk to you and ability to buy anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think about even for my own consulting practice. I mean, you know, we've we've done a decent job the last, you know, 13 plus years sort of creating content and building a good brand because of that brand halo and value. Like I think we can get conversations. We can have, you know, the CMO coffee talk group, you know, sort of get together and people will show up. That doesn't mean they're ready to buy. Right? That doesn't mean they're ready to buy today. Just because someone likes your content, thinks you've got a great brand, thinks you're a good sense maker, that is so. That is a separate variable to the conditions are right in the account for them to be able to buy. You know, t- as an example, I've I've had I've had sales cycles that last eight years because I met someone eight years ago where they started engaging with our content eight years ago and they loved what we were doing, but we're not at a company where they could take advantage of us or we're not in a place where they had the need. And here eight years later, they finally are at the right company with the right need and we're having a conversation. So, you know, do I give credit to whatever blog post they happen to read that day that caused them to follow up? Or how do I think about the body of work over eight years that created the conditions for me to get that I might have something to work with you on phone call? So it's, it's 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 an indication and you and this is not about just consulting this is every brand and organization has the ability to play this game right and it used to be you had to go you know buy space in the trade mags and you had to like you know count on the analysts to cover you and those things may still have value but your ability to be a creator today your ability to to treat your brand as a media company to create content that people want to spend time with on a regular basis that isn't about selling Podcasts like this, communities like the CMO Coffee Talk. I mean, those are all opportunities to build value that will eventually translate into business on both sides. I like to say that all of those things are the sum is always greater than its parts, right? The the individual blog post, the individual podcast, the ad that's on LinkedIn or Google, whatever it might be. Not very often is any of those individual things going to result in somebody picking up on the phone and calling you, right? But those things over time build up a greater sum than, than what they are individually. I mean, if you're selling a transactional product, if you're in the consumer space, you know, having an, having a campaign mentality might work, but boy, if I had a nickel for every time I use the phrase body of work recently, right. Referring not just to campaigns over time, not just to eight year sales cycles, but the idea that if you're trying to build and identify short-term pipeline, it's not an email. It's not a search campaign. It's not, you know, one direct mail sent. It's all of these efforts coordinated together in a body of work campaign, short-term and long-term is going to get the deal. Now, our ability to measure and track what's working, whole nother hour on that, right? Just to be able to sort of figure out what's working. But just because we can't measure it perfectly doesn't mean it's not happening. We can't default back to transactional metrics because that's what we have access to. We have to consider our work to be far more complex than that because the what's happening in the environments that we're selling into is, is way more complex than it ever used to be. So uh, before we start to wrap up, one just other question I wanted to get to is, is there any other, do you see any other trends in 2022 pertaining to a salesperson's, their mindset or their attitudes that really will help frame them to be more effective than, than others? So what is it from a sort of mindset and, and attitude standpoint that a salesperson has to have today that either is, I don't know if it's new or just more prominent or different than three, five years ago? Yeah. 
I mean, I think you know, we've talked about the sense making focus, right? Like and having bringing insights to the table, but also making sense of all the content that's out there. I think, I mean, look, I mean, sales has always been the most important role in the company. Unless a deal is closed, you got nothing and you're going to go away. I think today's sales reps, even those that have a structured environment where you've got maybe an account executive that owns the big deals and you've got BDRs that are helping to identify the right people to talk to, your ability as a sales rep to 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 provide to to provide value to your prospects on a constant basis and also separate out your your the time you're you're working through those late stage deals with sort of the separate level of discipline and, and skill set you need to sort of do the sense making and the insight development with those early stage prospects. Any good sales rep, any given day, any given week, they are moving from one place to another. It would be a lot simpler if you could just do a demo, 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 product, product, product. How can I sell you feature benefit, right? But today's sales rep is spending part of their time deep, deep funnel on talking about product in context of the outcome and part of their time still sense making and building insights and literally sort of not intentionally not talking about product and service. Right? I mean, you know, the best early stage conversations between sales rep and prospect, it doesn't talk about what you do. It talks about what the prospect needs. Right. Like they don't care about you until they care about the outcome it represents. I was just going to, which often means that they're doing a lot more asking questions and listening than talking. Right. Yeah. Asking questions, but sometimes coming, you know, so, sort of instead of asking the prospect what keeps them up at night, sometimes it really involves telling them what should keep them up at night. Like if you can talk to a prospect early on and, and say, listen, you know, I talk to people in your role all day long. And when I ask them what keeps them up at night, I hear the same three things list them off. Now, which of those three things just made you sweaty just because you know how hard it is and you haven't solved for it yet? Or even better as a seller, which of those three things are you not thinking about today? But now that you know that all of your peers are worried about this, would you like to learn more about why they're worried about this? Right. That's a, that's a great perspective. I think that just that subtle shift from what's keeping you up at night to here's three things that are most likely keeping, <laughs> keeping you up at night. Or should be. Or should be. Which you know, which one of these resonates most with you specifically? That sort of thing. It's it's a pretty subtle difference, but big impact, right? Well, and it it kind of combines a lot of what we've been talking about, right? You're bringing an insight to the table. You're saying I've already talked to a bunch of your peers, and here's the three things that I hear most often. You're focusing the conversation on three things that if they pick one of any of those things, those are things that in context you can solve. And you're also doing sense making, right? Like you're taking a lot of information, not asking the prospect to figure it out or on the fly, like give you all the details about a problem they have, but you're bringing insights and using sense making to have a value-based conversation that quite frankly, the prospect would pay for. If you can bring those insights to the table, like this is why people historically have hired analysts. This is why historically people have spent a lot of money to get other people to sort of do some of that research and grokking for them. This is part of the sales person's job today. And I'm not just putting this on the salesperson's sort of plate. This is, if you're a selling organization, if you are in marketing, your job is sense-making. If you are in sales, your job is sense-making. If you're in account management, if you are, we talked about account-based revenue. If you're on the customer side, the sense-making continues. Really good perspectives. And I love the the sense-making theme. And I think that's something for, for all salespeople to really take to heart in 2022. So as we wrap up, Matt, typically in our episodes, we like to end with uh, three questions, which are more sort of personal in nature. But I read your bio and I'm going to shift. We're actually going to do one question that has multiple parts. And so this relates to on your bio, you list among your favorite things, college football, woodworking, Barbecue, quality time with family, of course, books, Whidbey Island, crosswords, and epic sandwiches. 
Now, understanding that obviously family comes first, your family will probably listen to this. So we got to make sure that's the case. Other than family first, rank order those things and why, or at least some of them, which, which, which two or three of those are top for you and why? I would say woodworking and Whidbey Island in part because, you know, Whidbey Island is so I, you know, I live outside of Seattle. It's about two hours, including a ferry ride to get to a, 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 a little place we own in the middle of Whidbey Island. And it's, it's, it's just a world away. Right. And so being able to go out there with family and just enjoy time hiking times at the beach, you know, family's time super important to me. Sort of being able to sort of, you know, get back and sort of spend time outside is super important. So for me, getting out there is really important. I say woodworking because I spend most of my day doing stuff like this. Like I talk and type for a living, which I am very, very fortunate and blessed to be able to do. So, you know, on off hours, I, this is so I like to work on my calluses. Like I really enjoy, like my wife is a, she's a master gardener. Like, I don't mean by like, you know, accreditation, but like she's phenomenal out in the yard. And so I'm infrastructure guy. Like you need planter boxes built. You need irrigation system. You need a new fence, you know, eight foot tall fence to keep deer out of certain areas. Like I'm your guy. Like I'm not, I would consider myself an amateur adequate woodworker. I'm not great, but I enjoy it. And being able to build something, like do something with my hands at the end of the day, I get a lot of value out of it. And it helps my wife and helps the business or helps the, the family. And, you know, we get some decent produce out of it at the end of the season as well. So yeah, I would say woodworking, it would be Island, the two I'd pick. Excellent. Very good. Well, I want to thank Matt Hines once again for joining us. He's brought some really great perspectives. If you're listening to this, please rate the show. Give us a comment if you like what you've heard. Share this with others that you know that you think would gain benefit from it. You can find Matt Hines on LinkedIn. You can follow him there for, again, great insights that he regularly shares. You can find Matt on Twitter at Hines Marketing. And again, his website, which is HeinzMarketing.com. So Matt, again, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. A lot more that we probably could have got to. So maybe we'll be able to have you back again sometime later on. We'll get into some other things, but this has been great. So thank you very much for being with us. Thanks everybody for listening and look forward to having you join us for our next episode soon. Thanks everyone. You've been listening to Mental Selling, an Integrity Solutions podcast. Stay in touch with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player and following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please give us a rating, leave a comment and share episodes you love. That helps us keep empowering sales and service leaders to master the mental side of selling. Until next time, let's go out and create amazing customer experiences.